everyone. Uh, welcome back to Arthritis Consumer Experts Arthritis at Home program. My name is Cheryl Cohen. I am part of the ACE team. I'm also a person uh, living with rheumatoid arthritis. It feels like a, for a million years now. Um, and I'm very, very happy uh, to be able to welcome back to our program um, Ms. Nevena Redich. Uh, Nevena, if I will, if I may, um, is, uh, is actually now an, a newly anointed uh, <laughs> doctoral student. Uh, her supervisor is Dr. Mary DeVera um, and uh, someone we know well, obviously, here at ACE and have interviewed many times before. Um, a little bit about Navina. Navina uh, is a graduate trainee at Arthritis Research Canada, and she's a student at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences. And she, I love the way Navina describes herself as serving a 10-year sentence, um, <laughs> which is basically how long it takes to become uh, a doctor in her field of study and, and many others. Um, she previously completed a five-year Bachelor of Pharmacy and is about uh, and has just recently wrapped up her two-year uh, Master's of Science um, and has started, as I've mentioned, this month her uh, doctoral degree. So we're super happy um, to have you here, Nevena. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. I love being on ACE. Your work is really unique, we, we think, here at ACE. And it's one of the reasons we love what you're doing um, it's so fresh, it's so important, it's so serious, um, and it really revolves around and incorporates social justice, anti-racism, and decolonization practices into your role as mm -hmm. a clinical researcher. And I think uh, all of those things are, as we have learned over the last number of months, um, become such an important part of the conversation, not just in healthcare, but uh, around the world. So in your opinion, um, why is it important to take action against injustices, whether they impact yourself, um, your loved ones, or others you may not even know out in your community? Um, do you have any experiences you'd like to share about advocating for yourself or others? So it's a bit of a two-pronged question. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> take I your time. <laughs> I'm a verbal processor, so you're going to get a lot from me. That's okay. Um, I, um, so I've been doing a lot of reflecting, and I think I mentioned this to Maya, too, as sort of um, we started this sort of more global conversation about racial justice and kind of what got me there and sort of what might be some of the differences I see between some people who are just stepping into this conversation and where I'm at, which I don't feel as a form of as at a point of expertise, but I recognize that I've had more exposure than other people, I would say. Um, and I think I've just um, sort of jumping from a clinical degree to a public health degree, even though these topics of power, position, privilege were in my service work a lot, I think coming into the uh, sort of research field and public health specifically has made me realize um, so much more of the data behind it and the evidence behind it because you do a lot of reading of literature. I think uh, we see these different layers very clearly through the pandemic um, when you look at who it's affecting more and then you take and you layer that gender piece on top of it and okay if, if um, Black and Latinx are, are really those being most severely affected and dying of COVID um, then you add layer of being a woman 
and all the multiple roles a woman plays in society, um, they're getting hammered even more. And, and it's, it's just, you know, the more we know about these things, the more aware we can become as individuals and, and become empathic. I think empathy is so critical and empathy is really trying to find a way to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Try to picture yourself as that person and feel what that experience is, is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I guess what, where we want to go with you in this question is think back even a week, a month, or however far back you need to go about a particular instance of personal advocacy or community advocacy that you've engaged in and why. But I think something that I've seen a lot of um, sort of the BIPOC uh, scholars and advocates that I kind of follow on Twitter talk about. And so I'll raise this here because I think it's, I think it's important for everyone to engage in this, but uh, conversations with your family about these issues and uh, kind of moving from kind of, there's a difference between your safety and your comfort. And I think a lot of us have, especially first generation, um, Canadians have um, difficulty kind of engaging in these conversations with some of the older people in their families um, because fighting like conflict with your family is so much harder than conflict outside because you are so much closer with them and I found because I've done you a lot can't of walk away from your family <laughs> you can't take a break you can't yeah. cancel culture I mean yeah in maybe in more extreme cases, uh, yeah. you know, need to, but generally, you know, they're always there and there are people that you love and there are people who respect, whose respect you want, who you want to be seen by. Um, and so I feel like a lot of the last few months, the tensions that I have created in my own home have been sort of related to issues of sort of equity and understanding, um, uh, kind of diverse perspectives and sort of advocacy work around justice. Yeah. And even though it is, I'll say personally, like I've had these conversations with my family for a while and it's about the micro stuff, right? And the micro stuff is always hard to see until you've done that learning. Yeah. Um, but I've definitely, I want to say also notice kind of growth in my mom and my dad. We've talked uh, in some of our publications recently about underrepresentation of, of women, elderly and minority folks, um, people in, in research. And I guess I want to ask you, um, in your experience as a researcher, how can participating in research um, help advance health equity? Science has historically excluded certain groups. And also when it's done research uh, and included those groups, um, it has often um, caused harm, whether it's um, kind of undesired consequences of testing, you know, contraception or kind of um, vaccinations and different sort of um, sort of infectious diseases among certain groups. It's caused harm to groups that are historically oppressed and underrepresented. And so I think it's kind of a two-pronged question. I think kind of related to our last interview where sort of we talked about how, um, you know, a COVID model is only as good as the data that's put into it. I think the results that we have 
and what we know based on evidence is only as good as where we do our research. Yeah. And so the per, ensuring that we get everyone participating, especially those people who have historically not participated in kind of westernized research is extremely important to actually being able to then take actions that are sort of um, based in data and based in the real and lived experiences um, of those groups. Um, but I think it's also, on the other hand, it's really important that when you're executing that research, research that you're being extremely mindful and that you are kind of, um, as we do, we get, we get kind of arthritis participants to, um, or arthritis patients to participate in our research and help kind of inform how we go about it. Um, I think it's important to have those kind of lived experiences and work with researchers who um, may have that lived experience or may have sort of the knowledge of how to do that work in a very um, conscientious way and in a way that um, sort of brings in those communities. It's so challenging. I can yeah. even just... Well, it clearly is because, of course, we only have to think back a couple of months when some of the first, the early data in the vaccine trials were coming out and the last, you know, in the conclusion was we had zero, you know, very low participation on the part of ethnic minorities, so we don't know about them. I mean, I was gobsmacked, Navina, to, to hear that on the news, to read it in the journal articles or the summaries. I mean, have we learned nothing in the last seven months mm -hmm. about the importance of, and these are the very people in which COVID is killing, mm -hmm. yet they're not included or they're significantly underrepresented in the vaccine trials. Thus, mm -hmm. we don't know, we can't make that broad generalization that it will work in these ethnic minority communities. I know you're very active on uh, social media and um, obviously uh, we've spoken to you about Black Lives Matter, um, the scholar strike that just occurred uh, last week, or was it, yeah, the 10th and the 11th. Um, how, I mean, I think we all get a sense of how social media can be used as an advocacy tool, but I kind of want to throw that question out at you. How can you use it as, a, as an advocacy tool and how are you using it as an advocacy tool? Yeah. I think for me, especially, you know, given my identities, I'm very much use it as a place of learning. I've used Twitter actually a lot to find um, kind of black and sort of indigenous advocates and scholars in sort of the reproductive space, the uh, epidemiology space, and then just beyond that of whose voices do I follow. And then that's also helped me feel more confident in sort of when I'm talking about these issues that I am saying things that are sort of um, that align with what are the experiences of people who advocate in this field and who have the li who have lived experiences. And yeah. so for me, it's very much been, um, especially if you're very kind of deliberate and who you follow and the accounts that you'll listen, that you'll um, kind of take information from as well. And I think it also works on Instagram too. They have great little graphics. I'm curious to know, since you've been involved in arthritis, Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, uh, what areas do you think should be priority areas for advocacy in, in arthritis or with mm -hmm. respect to arthritis? And I ask that not as a trick question, 
because I know you know that Arthritis Consumer Experts is, it has been a leader in arthritis advocacy for 20 years. Um, I, I've always considered it sort of one of the core pieces of work that we do day to day and at a very systemic and, and hopefully strategic way and we have priorities but i'm keen to hear what what yeah. you view as priorities for advocacy and i think a conversation and kind of some thought leaders in the area that i've more recently started to follow is this issue of ableism and what do what is um sort of what is our uh, what is our definition of ability versus disability and expanding that definition because i think a lot of us think about um, disability as somebody who needs help with mobility on a consistent basis. We have that, you know, little wheelchair, uh, and if somebody needs that, that is disability. Um, and I, in my even personal experiences, have kind of been faced with this convert, this um, this topic a little more recently, and um, just expanding even my knowledge of. Um, sort of what other what are other barriers to accessibility do people have um, whether it's related to more invisible disabilities we know with arthritis there's a lot of chronic pain that comes with that and um, other kind of co consequences of disease that can uh, decrease accessibility to to just life in general right and then there's also um, accessibility related to kind of mental health and well-being um, kind of more obvious more obviously on sort of um, the ideas of like neurodiversity but also the ideas of sort of depression and anxiety and how much that can decrease our motivation and I think we've all sort of learned during this pandemic how much our mental health can um, influence how capable we feel of kind of going about our day and feeling like we are kind of, I don't want to talk about productivity because productivity is another kind yeah. of issue of um, how rating success based on how much we do in a day, but our ability to kind of um, engage in those activities that make us feel connected to our community um, and to our own learning and our own selves. And so I think we think about disability as whether somebody is you know, whether, whether you have a disability or where you don't, as opposed to thinking about how are our systems um, creating barriers to accessing, you know, whatever aspect of our lives and how can we create systems that sort of de increase access and sort of dismantle some of those barriers. Yeah. Um, and I've learned, I think recently that when it comes to, when it comes to having kind of issues with um, ability, it can also be dynamic, especially when it comes to kind of pain and um, maybe more mental health and psychological related stuff where, you know, one day you can be really great and another day it's hard to function. Yeah. And how do we sort of, as a society, start thinking about how are we being flexible towards people and how are we creating spaces that make, um, make it easy for people to engage and feel like they are a part of a community and feel like they aren't being upset kind of oppressed by this uh, norm of what productivity, what success, what, um, you know, personal attainment looks like and where we need to be. Um, I know mental health uh, and Mary's other PhD student is really much looking into mental health and how that affects um, lived experiences. For me, pregnancy and how the underrepresentation of um, research within uh, sort of pregnant populations um, creates a lot of barriers to accessing really good care while you're also thinking about caring for another person right. um and then 
just sort of, yeah, the expectations of how do you live work um, as someone who might live with chronic pain or chronic fatigue or brain fog, you know, some of those things that are a little more invisible, but do impact your ability to sort of engage um, in your lived activities. We need to first start with reframing what we see. And I kind of, it's, it can be very overwhelming when you start to sort of have a conversation with someone and notice sort of um, maybe if I'm talking to a man, like I am a woman, this is a, you know, I'm talking to uh, a male colleague, how it, might this be um, affecting the way that this conversation is had and then add race and add sort of sexuality into that. Um, when you start seeing those systems in your everyday life, it can be quite overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I feel like, um, where we need to start. Yeah. Um, and then we can sort of see where are those opportunities for those changes in our own kind of power in our own sphere. Um, and um, I think the question of taking action is really hard. I've gone to a number of web webinars talking about this and um, it can be quite challenging, especially for if you don't hold a position of power, if you don't run a company, if you don't run a research team and institution, like what does that look like? Um, and I don't necessarily have um, a lot of answers for that, but I have sort of those, you know, looking into your own sphere of who is in your influence, who are you having these conversations with? I think for me, I sit on way too many committees, which can also be, you know, a form of uh, delaying action sometimes. Um, but kind of that's how are, because that is privilege in some ways, right? Yeah, and uh, you often find that um, sometimes you have all the data on an issue, but people still want to form a committee about it, and it sort of delays what could be. Like we saw how the world mobilized when COVID came to light. Oh, I guess that's why I, we asked that final question, what is it we can do? And what I heard from you loud and clear was don't, don't go in there and colonize with your solution. You know, don't go in and say, here's how I'm going to fix your problem, but rather open our doors and our hearts and our minds and our resources and say, you know, using your framework, how can we help you? Like, what is it we can offer um, in, in support? Yeah. Um, you lead, I will follow. And yeah. I guess really simply put, I don't know if that's right or not, Navina, but that's how we've been trying to act since, since May, although I think we've acted this way, but perhaps not consistently and perhaps not as awake um, mm -hmm. as we might have hoped to have been. But I think we're closer to that state now than, than we ever were before. It is always an absolute delight. I always learn so much uh, from you, uh, Navina. This is, I, you know, we're doing everything we can to be accountable. And mm -hmm. when we aren't, we want people to point at us and say, you're not being accountable. We want to hear how we can do to do better with someone's framework, not our own. Thank you so much, Nevena. It's always a delight um, speaking to you. We wish you all the best and rest assured we will be knocking on your digital door again um, to see how things are going for you and your program of study and, uh, and life in general. So thank you so much. Thank you. I always love talking to you, Cheryl. <laughs> oh, well, it, the feeling is very much mutual. 
So, and to you, our audience of Arthritis at Home, we want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Bye.